everybody. Welcome back to Going for Two, the official podcast of the Extra Points newsletter. I'm your intrepid host, Matt Brown, the publisher of the Extra Points newsletter. Joining you guys here today from beautiful, sunny Chicago. And I'm joined, as always, by my host, Brian Fisher. Brian, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing fantastic. Also sunny and uh, beautiful here as well in Los Angeles. But uh, I'm excited for our podcast today because uh, we, we got a good mutual friend of ours in, in Bill Connolly of ESPN and a subject that I think a lot of our readers and, and listeners of the Extra Points and, and Going For Two podcast uh, really want to dive into because it, it really is almost a, a daily part of our lives nowadays. Yeah, I, I love talking to Bill. Bill was one of my, my favorite coworkers when we both worked together at Expedition. Bill's books uh, have been really influential in in my own work, both for college football history and how I understand everything. But if you don't know Bill, Bill works for ESPN now, and he is one of the real pioneers of the advanced stats movement within college football. Bill is the guy that helps you understand what you're seeing on your TV and how to predict what's going to happen next on your TV through spreadsheets. He uh, he is somebody that's been able to help uh, explain data-informed decision-making and predictive powers within college athletics. And so we wanted to sit down here and talk with Bill a little bit about what his numbers showed from last season, a year where none of the inputs made any sense, what they're showing for next season, given that those inputs are going to look very different, and, and maybe some things that we can all be taking away from to be better, and uh, not data-driven, but data-informed about how college football actually works. Yeah, and, and I mean, there's only a handful of people, especially in the college football realm, that get invited to like the MIT Sloan Analytics Conference, and, and Bill is one of them. So who better to have on th- than him? Because it is a lot to get into and, and a lot of fun that we can have with something that seems pretty boring, but can actually tell us a lot about what goes on the field and what could happen on the field going forward. Yeah. So let's bring in Bill here right now. We can kind of dig into some of these issues. Bill, the, the first question I have is I've, I've been following your advanced stats work with college football for the, the past couple of years. And I, I, I feel like it, intuitively, I, I understand the basics of how a lot of these systems work. We understand how the inputs work. But the last college football season was nuts on on every possible level. And I would imagine for somebody like you, a COVID year would have introduced all kinds of new variables that your system couldn't have possibly attempted to um, take into account. Were you, were you surprised with how the final SP plus results looked after the COVID season? Were there things that you tried to tweak the numbers to account for, or how, how did that work after a really weird year? Yeah, I mean, at the end of it, you had Alabama at the top, so it only looked so weird, I guess. But um, no, I mean, there was no non-conference. The the connectivity um, from team to team and conference to conference was cut dramatically, and you know, there it, it was really hard. Number one, it was hard to prepare for that because we didn't quite know it was going to happen until August, and I was keeping myself busy enough that I, yeah. I didn't really have a chance to tinker all that much. At the end of the regular season before the bowls, I, I got a chance to tinker a little bit just to see. Uh, I basically like simulated old seasons to see, like, I know what the end of, I know what the real quote unquote uh, 2019 ratings were. Well, what happens if I get rid of most of the non-conference and blah, 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 and just kind of simulated a new 2019 to see how close it came. And it kind of gave me an idea of some adjustments to make for the end result, but in season, yeah, it was a big mess. I mean, it was, um, you know, it it still performed. Okay. It was only a little bit worse than normal. Um, But that kind of made sense to me too, because 
you know, if, if, if the, if the biggest problem was conference to conference connectivity and figuring out where everybody stands, that's only an issue if you're playing out of conference and everybody, and nobody was. So it still looked mostly right. Now the shuffling in season was the other part of this, where you just had, you know, we always have depth charts that change, but they were, you know, 20 times worse this year. And so you're projecting a team for a given week that doesn't exist that week. And, and obviously that was going to cause some issues too, but really, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't horrible. I, I didn't want to, I never wanted to overstate it was worse than normal, but it wasn't dramatically worse than normal. And, and, you know, again, when you still had Alabama, Ohio state and Clemson at the top, you know, it, it, it couldn't have been that weird. Yeah. I, I've been thinking about that because on the field, things played out, for at the FBS level, relatively chalk heavy, you know, not just with Alabama at the top, but even I think within a lot of the, the specific conference races, but on any given particular week, it wasn't uncommon to have 15, 16, 17, maybe more players out, yeah. which would be substantially more roster attrition than you would have over the course of a given season, just due to injuries. Does, does, does that change the way that you might look at trying to account for injuries or roster attrition heading into this season, given that we now have a different data set? Well, it was really strange. Yeah. I mean, I, it probably changes something. I don't know what though, that, that's the problem. Like, yeah. you know, anytime I was trying to tweak things in season, I only made things worse. Um, but even with injuries, it was really weird. Like Virginia tech early on, um, they were awesome for a minute, (laughs) but they were had like 22 guys missing the first game and all this, like their roster was changing constantly, but they were pretty good the first few games of the year. Um, but a lot of the teams, what Miami was one where, um, it just seemed like they were dealing with issues all year and it finally just caught up to them. That seemed kind of, that seemed semi-common where the teams that were dealing with a whole lot of issues early on, it wasn't necessarily that they, were struggling because of those issues as they happened. But by the end of the season, they were just toast. Um, and, and Virginia tech was kind of that way until they rebounded to be Virginia. They seemed like they were totally out of steam too. So it's, yeah, I think there was a cumulative aspect there, but again, I don't know. I don't know what I will do to account for that. I mean, the numbers, the, the, the numbers are the numbers what you, you know, maybe that's, maybe there's a reason there to, to call on like, the, the weighted history, like the five-year history to lean on that a little bit more and make 2020 worth less. But uh, I don't know. I mean, it might just be a situation where I try to phase out the projections a smidge sooner because they just don't seem to reflect quite what they would in a normal year. We'll see. I recall from you, you know, this idea that not all returning production is necessarily created equally. Like all things considered, it's probably better to have more returning production experience, say, in your defensive secondary than it might be in in other parts of of your lineup where it might be a little bit easier to move up. But now we're headed into this year where you're going to have a bunch of really experienced teams. Yep. I want, yeah. Has, has that produced any surprising uh, metrics or rankings, you know, looking at that data now that we have so many super seniors coming in? Yeah. I mean, and I'm still trying to account for all the super seniors at the G five level. So um, I mean, that's kind of an ongoing thing, yeah. but yeah. So basically the returning production formula that I use, yeah, it's, it's based on what seems to have the most, impact on, on whether you move up or down the next year. So quarterback, obviously that's like 30% of the offense. 
Um, everybody else is between like five and 7% um, based on, you know, like running backs apparently are a little easier to account for the receivers. If you have turnover in the passing game, or like you said, the secondary seems like it matters a little bit more than other aspects. But um, I mean, this, this year is absolutely weird in that normally the way I draw up that uh, formula, so to speak, the average returning production for the nation is like 62, 63%. I'm still adding more um, of those G5 super seniors as I come across them, but we're up to 70% for the national average this year. So, I mean, just everybody. And it's funny, like I'm a Missouri fan um, and watching the Missouri internet, they had three or four guys announced they were coming back and all Missouri fans are like, oh yeah, this is going to be our year. Like everybody, like every school in the country has experienced exactly that. So you basically have to return a lot to break even. And that's going to be, that's going to be kind of interesting. But the whole idea of returning production is going to get... I guess, tested this year just because uh, in the Pac-12, like almost everybody's at 80% or higher. Like, you know, based on the normal equation, you know, your normal X percent of last year's yards and whatnot back, um, they have like, I don't remember what it was, but they had a lot of teams in the top 12. UCLA is over 90%. Typically, number one is somewhere around the 87, 88% mark. We had three teams over 90 at the moment. UCLA is one of them all these teams from the PAC 12 are projected to improve pretty dramatically this year, but it does it. Is it, does it work the same when you're returning all of your production from four games? Right. Like, you know, what, when we talk about returning production, is it, you know, all the experience you got last year, did you get that same experience if it was only practice, if you weren't really actually playing that much? So the whole idea is going to be kind of tested and the upper bounds are going to be tested by it too, just because Louisiana, Louisiana Lafayette, UL Lafayette, whatever, however we refer to them in a given day, 96%, like they return, they lose a couple running backs, uh, they get a third running back who's pretty awesome. Also, they get him back, and that's pretty much all they lose from uh, from their roster. So, how much can you improve just based on returning production? Iowa State, like, do you hit your ceiling on upside at some point, or do you just keep right on improving when you return almost everybody from a really good team last year? So, there's I'm really really curious how whether it works the same way this year or not. If it does, then it says amazing things about the Pac-12. Still don't have a national title contender, but you might yeah. have like eight teams who think they can be top 25 this year, who, who have some somewhat realistic thoughts of being top 25 this year, and that'd be a really interesting conference. Especially given that most people didn't watch any Pac-12 football last year, or, or right. very little. Like You have all the, the national narratives about this being a little bit more of an afterthought league, and then there was last season when it, you know, perhaps even more so this might be an interesting year to be a team that doesn't have that, that crazy kind of returning experience, right? Like even if you were somebody that was just like baseline, potentially uh, you you could, you could be penalized for that way more than you would off the top of my head. I could, I think BYU would be near the bottom given that they're losing almost everybody. Is there anybody else that's like in like the fifties that could really be in a, in a, a challenging spot? Well, BYU and Northwestern are both um, pretty like in a normal year, their, their production numbers would be considered pretty, pretty bad. Right. They'd still be at the near the bottom and BYU 
I know Nicole Auerbach talked about this um, with Kalani Sitake, uh, what, a couple of weeks ago now. Like, they're they're almost paying for the fact that they had such a perfect senior season. Like, their super seniors were like, no, I'm good. That was that was great. <laughs> yeah. Like, I can't think of a better ending, so let's just call it. Um, and that's going to hurt them a lot this year because, I mean, they were top 10 in SP+, Plus, which is really hard for a team with that with that iffy a schedule that they that they were able to come up with. The fact that they were top 10 says a ton about how good they were. They're projected to fall to 52nd this year. Um, Northwestern is, is loses almost as much and they're projected to fall to 75th. I think they were about 30th if I remember right. So yeah, I mean, if everybody else is moving up and you move down, you might move down a whole heck of a lot further than you would in a normal year. And again, and again, like I'm curious if this really plays out this way. I Northwestern's been all over the map before. We know it's just going to come down to how many close games they win anyway. Yeah. But um, but if everybody else is more experienced and they're not, it doesn't really matter how good their defense was last year. They really might find some. Uh, find some uh, tough games. Well, and, and Bill, it's not just the super seniors. We, Matt and I have talked quite a bit about the one-time transfers and how much that's yep. been able to help coaches supplant the roster. How big of an impact do you think some of those transfers can have on these teams? Because it's almost like you're, you're not only free agency, but you're able to plug those holes where those guys might've been missing. Yeah. And I'm really curious, like that's going to be just, you know, my little, my tactical brain, my game theory brain is really excited just to see how coaches use this because we're already seeing coaches use it in a ton of different ways. Um, You know, we know that the blue bloods will use it if they need a quarterback, but if, you know, if Alabama loses, it's starting like, you know, whatever weak side linebacker, um, and it's really the only hole they have to fill for next year. Are they just going to keep doing what they do uh, and, you know, using, you know, calling up one of their five-star freshmen or do they go a little more short-term and try to find the best, the best weak side linebacker in the transfer portal, so to speak. I would assume that we'll see the portal, you know, much more in use when it comes to rebuild jobs, like what Greg Schiano did last year, signing whatever it ended up being like 14 or something uh, transfers, mostly from P fives, yeah. mostly from winning programs. He basically just like, well, I need to create a culture. There is none here. Let's build in guys who know what a good culture is supposed to look like and go from there. I could see that being extremely common uh, when you, because that culture aspect, like Alabama doesn't need transfers. Clemson doesn't need transfers. They might to plug a hole or whatever, but they don't, they have their culture. They, they have their process for, for calling guys up and I don't see them um, using it all that much, but the, the mid tier teams that can maybe keep it two or three spots open per year to, to really, to see what comes about. I think you could see that. And then the, yeah, the rebuilds, you might, you might see first year coaches signing far fewer freshmen. That might be the biggest difference that we see in, uh, as this thing plays out. Yeah, I um, we, we, we've talked about this on like the, the lower end of the G5 level, but you know, certainly I, I trying to think of which power five school off the top of my head. But I, I want to say there are some where you're looking at 14, 15, 16, you know, players on your roster potentially changing over from that from that portal, which can be right. hard to account for in, in a preseason SP plus ranking. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, and, and just to to that point, um, the way the way it works is I take your production from this other school and I mash it into the denominator and the numerator numerator and denominator um with your returning production totals that's that's the whole uh that, that's the process so <laughs> typically what we see is 
you know, it, it count, it matters more who you're adding than who you're losing. Cause for the most part, if you're at the P five level, you're not losing starters. Uh, you, I mean, yeah. you do sometimes obviously, but typically it's the guys who are like entering their third year, haven't cracked the two deep. And so it doesn't really make an impact in that way, but it can absolutely make an impact for who you add from, especially from like a lower level. So looking at some of these, these early numbers ahead for next year, we, I mean, already over, over the course of this conversation, there's a couple of, of, of potential big storylines to, to focus on, right? You have potentially some of the best depth um, that you've had in the Pac-12 in, in a couple of years where you're going to see uh, potentially five, maybe six teams with numbers in front of them over the course of the season. We have some great case studies here about the true value of returning production, particularly with BYU, who's about to face a really challenging schedule uh, at Northwestern, maybe with a little bit more manageable one. You and I have watched a lot of garbage Northwestern teams somehow back into nine and three seasons. Maybe there's an argument for that. Now, is there anything else looking at this that you think – um, either flies, I mean, flies against what what a fan or a typical person w- w- would think over the past couple of years. Is there is there uh, some program that struggled for a little bit that you look at on paper that could maybe make a jump um, or or some other national trend we should be aware of? Well. Um... If you just look at like the top of the SP plus rankings, the name, the name that's going to stand out the quickest is probably Miami at eighth. Mm. Um, they are another one of the teams above 90% of returning production. So it's that same question. Like, do you continue to improve at that level that is projected when, you know, at that far end of the scale that we haven't ever reached before. So that's going to be, that's going to be really interesting because I mean, we see Miami and your immediate thought is, oh, yeah, we've been here before, whatever. It's, you know, they're always overrated. They're always back and whatnot. But, you know, with all the issues they were dealing with last year, they were at one point eight and one uh, and 14th in SP plus. Yeah. Um, they then completely ran out of gas. They got blown out by North Carolina. De'Aaron King gets hurt in the bowl game. Um, they end up eight and three and 21st. But we saw like when you hit the pause button where they're eight and one and 14th, it starts to kind of make sense that they might be a borderline top 10 team. When you consider that they return pretty much everybody, they lose a couple defensive ends, which you know, their DNs were really good, but they always have good DNs. You just assume they're going to have good DNs. And if they do, everybody else is back. So that kind of seems like a good team. And, and so this is a major opportunity for Manny Diaz. Obviously we've been here before with Miami and Texas and USC and all these other teams, uh, that were once good and we all raced to, cl- to claim that they're they're back to where they should be but on paper this one kind of makes sense and i like that I, I think it also carries weight that all those other teams i just mentioned like usc is the only team that it, that sp plus isn't aggressive about uh in in yeah. its projections it's not saying they're like a top five team or something so i think it carries a little weight to me i am very very curious now you know, the more hype they get, the harder they're going to lose to Alabama that first week because that's <laughs> typically how this works. But um, but I am very curious about them. Um, an- another name that stands out in its absence, I guess, would be Notre Dame at 25th. Um, the, well, I mean, number one, if you lose your starting quarterback this year, it's going to hurt when some other, so many other teams don't. Uh, now, the, yeah. he, they get credit for Jack Cohen's uh 2019 stats. So that wasn't that bad, but they finished the year kind of like Miami did in that they, um, you know, they were up to, they were unbeaten. They were fourth. Um, they were 10 and 0 and fourth in SP plus after beating Syracuse. Um, but it wasn't just that they lost badly to two good teams in Clemson and Alabama. It's that 
SP plus hated what they did against Clemson and Alabama. Like they were lucky to lose by 24 SP plus like in terms of how I go about like that adjusted scoring margin, it's not more like a 36 point loss against Clemson than 24 points against yeah. Alabama where they had the garbage time touchdown and all that. They, they lost by 17 SP, SP plus saw more like a 39 point loss on average. Like 17 was the best case scenario for that game. Um, so they fell from fourth to 16th in two games and now they lose their quarterback and their best defensive players. And now they're projected in the twenties. So that's really interesting to me. I don't, I, I would still assume they're in the teens. I think they've earned that kind of level of respect at this point, but they, th- this could be a, a, a little bit more of a retooling year than maybe people expect. Just in case anybody, you know, is, is listening here, I just want to point out that there's absolutely no shame in getting your ass kicked by last year's Alabama team. Lots of very good teams had that happen to them, potentially even on very big stages. Uh, we can't hold that against anyone. Uh, <laughs> um, it's interesting you mentioned those two teams. In, in part, it, I think both of them have some of the most interesting schedules uh, out of yep. anybody here. You, you, you pointed out, and I had forgotten about this, Um uh, Miami opens the season against Alabama. It's going to be in Atlanta. It's one of those, those neutral site games, but they also get App State. So if yep. you are real negative on Miami, uh, that could potentially <laughs> be hilarious. Uh, and then they play Michigan State. Um, you know, also also at home, a, a team that was very up and down, uh, I think, last season, Notre Dame. In addition to uh, the the Flotsam and Jetsam here of the ACC, uh, also will be playing Wisconsin in Chicago, and they're going to host Cincinnati which could be very, very funny because Cincinnati also returns almost everybody from what was numerically a truly excellent team. Not not an excellent for a G5 team, an excellent football team. Yeah, Notre Dame's schedule is fascinating too because of the order. Um, You know, even if with them projected in the the 20s, they're a projected favorite in their first three games and their last four, the middle five – they are uh, at least a slight underdog per SP plus in four out of those five games. And the other ones, they're just barely a favorite against Virginia tech. So like that middle portion late September to, or to late October could decide whether they're 10 at like 11 and one or seven and five. And that'll be really super interesting to see if Cohen or whoever the new quarterback is, if they can, if he can get up to speed, um, maybe, you know, maybe they can weather that they do have like, they have Florida state early, but they, they should win their first three games. But yeah, like the whether they're a little bit better than projected or not could make a humongous difference in their uh, record. Though a lot of these teams that we've been talking about, they didn't play in front of fans or they played in front of very limited fans. Yeah. I'm curious, what what did you learn about home field advantage both last year and, and how do you kind of spin that forward to a 2021 season where, frankly, we kind of expect a lot of these places to be jam packed uh, with fans? Yeah, I mean, I, I hope so. I hope I hope I'm I'm ready to watch a game with a crowd that doesn't make me uncomfortable that they're there. Like that's the whole my one goal for the rest of 2021 because I you know I've been watching a lot of soccer um, and it just it's wearing me down. Just all the the moments where there should be a huge pop in the crowd and it's just nothing. Like I'm ready for the crowd, but then I see a crowd in the stands and I'm like, oh god, why are they there? Why are they there? This so yeah. <laughs> uh, hopefully. Like the, I can get some, uh, some mental peace there. Um, typically what I, the, the home field adjustment I use, the, th- the thing that seems to produce the, bo- the best results is about two and a half points per game in, in, in normal universes. Um, what I found like early last season, I was, you know, I was using like point 
five, I think, or point. No, I started off at one, I think. Um, just because I had seen from soccer over the summer that there was still a little bit of a home field advantage, just not as much. So I started with one. I would have, like, in retrospect, I would have had the best results using zero, using no home field advantage whatsoever. But for whatever reason, whether it was randomness or, I mean, bigger uh, bigger schools getting involved, and I'm not really sure, but as the season went on, uh, it seemed like there was more, you got back up to about one point or so, one and a half even. Um, I don't know what, what that means exactly, but it was basically, there was still a little bit there, just like there have been in other sports. I, I saw Ken Pomeroy talking today about how like, it, it was the lowest home field advantage on record for or home court advantage for basketball this year, but barely it was like whatever he said, 2016, 17 was barely higher than this year in terms of that. So it definitely still existed. It definitely wasn't as strong beyond that. I'm really, I'm not really sure. I it just, when we're all dealing with such small samples and when we're all dealing with such different home environments under normal circumstances, uh, well, Bill, you mentioned soccer. We, both of us are, are big soccer fans. Uh, the rare is it that I can only find somebody who loves college football and soccer and tennis as, as much as we two do. But uh, <laughs> there's like six of exactly. Us, there, like, there's there's you can count on one hand. That's for sure. What when you look at those other sports and, and you look at some of the advanced stats and advanced you know yeah. analytics that they they those other sports do. Where is college football in kind of relation to those sports? And, and what do you kind of see on the horizon uh, from the sport maybe taking from a soccer or a tennis or something like that? Well, it's behind. Well, it might be ahead of tennis, I guess. Um, but I mean, there's no question as far as the major sports go, it's, it's way behind basketball and baseball, obviously soccer's kind of in a weird place where I think it was ahead of soccer. Now soccer's caught up in a hurry. Um, but I don't think there's any question also that like, you know, I, when I, I started doing this full-time in 2011, I wrote my first book in 20, what would that have been 2013, I think. Um, it has improved massively within that amount of time. And, um, you know, number one, just kind of general acceptance of, of the role they can play in all these other sports. I think that's helped, but also, um, I think with fourth downs being the gateway drug and just enough teams playing with the fourth downs, not, not enough to where the announcers just call it the analytics. Every time somebody goes for it on fourth down in a certain spot, Lane Kiffin, um, but you know, I do think there's been massive progress in, in that regard. Um, I, you know, I, I mentioned championship analytics a lot. I know they have a lot of clients at the FBS level. They're the ones who provide like the giant binders for, um, every down distance score quarter scenario possible for, for when to go for it. I do think that's helped with acceptance a lot. Um, I think PFF, you know, with the, I, I think just, so I'm, I'm kind of jumping around here, but I think there are two different ways that analytics can help. Number one is, you know, providing you new information, you or th things you didn't realize about before, or, you know, ways to prove some of your assumptions wrong, all that stuff, kind of the big challenging stuff that we like to talk about. The other part is just providing you with a bunch of information way more quickly than you could do it. If then you could get it, if you did it manually. And so like the PFF, FF types out there the, um, that have, I, I know, have a lot of clients at the college level just to be able to go in to, to help you go in and say, like, you know, what percentage uh, of, of out routes does this receiver run? St stuff like that, that can basically just save you time. Um, that's a big piece of it. And as you get to trust uh, companies with for that kind of information, then I think you're you're much more likely to listen to what they have to say about other stuff once you realize kind of 
that you're speaking the same language. So that helps a lot. The fourth down thing has made a lot of progress over the last two, three years in particular. I think that helps a lot. So it's, it's, it's ongoing. Like there, you know, this is still a sport that doesn't allow computers in the press box. Um, you know, you know, so you can't not even the, the, you know, the, the iPads with the big, uh, logo on the back. Like there's just, you know, it's a technology free thing. That's why championship analytics literally makes binders for everybody. Um, and so there's only so much progress you can make, but I think it is absolutely making headway when it comes to just changing people's instincts and reflexes from like Sunday to Friday, you know, you're, you're using more of an analytics perspective in your, in your preparation. And then on Saturday, you're just using all your instincts and, and maybe they've changed a little bit, but I do think the prep area has, has helped a lot. And so, curious how far that goes um curious you know when if if or when they ever do allow ipads or or laptops and you can process information a lot more quickly on game day i'm curious what that changes but i do think there's absolutely been headway since i started this I, I mean, the rules committee has even started to, to discuss possibly having, you know, headsets, you know, NFL style. Um, a few of those changes, I think, are coming yep. in the sport. And you look at sports science, too. I think that's a huge area yep. where a lot of schools are investing resources. We've had the GPS in, in the trackers for, for a long time, not quite to maybe the NFL level, but yep. that's certainly coming in, in multiple ways. H- how could that impact kind of the, the broader uh, analytical look at this game when you not only have player data about running out routes, but you know how fast he's running and, and, and yep. beyond. Yeah. And I mean, obviously this opens up a whole new thing, especially with, with unpaid athletes about, you know, who owns that data privacy yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, uh, I mean, leaving that to the side for now, leaving that awkward thing to the side. I mean, there's no question that you have 365 days, a lot. You see these guys so much of the time you, they're in practice so much of the time, the more, you know, and then we, we base most of our judgments off of 12 Saturdays in the fall. Like if you can use, if you can figure out how to use more of that information that you gather the rest of the year, then, I mean, I think that would do pretty amazing things. Whether we're talking about scouting, whether we're talking about being able to project guys development better or understand where they are in their developmental curve. Cause it's, you think about like, you have a nine month off season, eight months, I guess. Um, and like, how often is your too deep right when the season starts? You had eight months to figure out what you had. And then you realize three weeks in, like, okay, that was wrong. I'm starting the wrong guy here. I, you know, I'm starting Max Brown instead of Sam Darnold. Um, you know, all these things that we, we you know, somehow we, we still hit the season kind of unprepared in that regard. And so you, there's all this developmental data, you know, all the, all the weight room data, all the GPS data that, yeah, if, if, if you're one of the teams that can figure out how, how better to make conclusions based off of that, whether it's about your own team or your opponents, that becomes really, really interesting. Cause that is developments is just this big black box. We know, with team sports, I always talk about like there are three silos. There's the acquisition, there's the development, and then there's the deployment side. We know how to talk about the deployment side. In college, we definitely know how to talk about the acquisition side. It's, you know, recruiting stars and bagmen and whatnot. But that middle portion is just, I, we still don't know how to talk about development all that well, besides like how, you know, what rate weight room guy records guys are setting. So the, the, I think there's absolutely progress to be made in that regard for whoever can figure it out. I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I, I think it's important to frame that exact silo within the context of analytics, right? Like with, with, when I look at SP plus and we look at what a lot of analytics are in the college football context, especially for fans, um, 
I think a lot of it is in the context of evaluating outcomes and predicting future outcomes. It's what we see and how we categorize what happens on Saturday. And we, we input some data from acquisition, which at this point we can, we can monitor and evaluate relatively well. Um, But the, the, the development side is something that also should be data informed. Um, and, you know, I, people like you and I, especially like myself, don't have that same vocabulary to talk about that process that, that they do um, <laughs> with, with outcomes or, or something else. Like I, I look at, at somebody like Chip Kelly and I, I think of what his genius was at Oregon wasn't just what was happening with the deployment schematically and using tempo in a different way. It was his ability to not just acquire different kinds of, of player data, but then analyze and use that data in ways that other coaching staffs weren't. Now, everybody else does, mm. um, particularly particular with, right. with nutrition and how they run practice schedules and your competitive advantage isn't quite the same way. But it seems like this is another place both for journalists and for third parties and for coaches uh, to, to become more data informed um, to pick an advantage because you're probably not going to get that same competitive advantage from acquisition anymore, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you're usually your reward for finding an advantage in that regard is watching that advantage disappear when everybody else yeah. does it too, whether it's Chip Kelly, Arsene Wenger in soccer, you know, with his, what he did from a nutrition standpoint and the way he thought about attacking, well, it worked. So everybody did it and he was, he struggled to find advantages over the last part of his career. So um, definitely that way with Chip Kelly, with pretty much everything he's done. But no, it is an opportunity. That's for sure. And I am nutrition. I think I, I don't know what other advancement can be done there. I'm sure there's something. But um, yeah, the you know I I know schools that have a pretty good you know layout of you know here's what all conference here's what an all conference athlete in our our school looks or you know in terms of physically and and weight room measurements and speed and all this here's kind of the bar we're aiming for with all of our whatever our linebackers or whatever it is and they have they they've framed that in interesting ways which i like but yeah i mean like I said, like somehow we still get our two deeps wrong after a very, very long yeah. off season. And, and if you can figure that part out better, that's a massive advantage just right out of the gate sure. for you. I want I want to ask you one other question, shifting gears a little bit, um, that crystallizes so many of the same stupid arguments that our sport has, you know, every year, right? We, for good or for ill. The, a lot of the national conversation around a college football season is centered around the college football playoff. And we are trying to then figure out uh, and analyze and rank um, teams based on imperfect and insufficient amounts of data. Um, and I, I, I'm, I, I'm imagining the three of us are relatively simpatico about how we feel about the committee makeup and maybe some of those metrics that they use. But I, I, from your perspective, in order to help us have slightly better stupid arguments, if you were in charge, how would, I mean, other than like expanding the the, the playoff or, or changing something structurally, how would you change how those teams are evaluated? What, what should we, what, what are the, what inputs should we be changing to, to get maybe a better result or a more fair result? Well, I mean, the first thing is what you just uh, asked me to dismiss and that's expand the field. And, oh, sure. and when I, just because like, because this is really hard. And so yeah. it's very, you know, if you've got a Cincinnati, you know, especially a Cincinnati that hasn't played any of the other teams that everybody else has played, you can't, you know, there's only so good a read you can get. And if you have auto bids in there and all that, you just, you cover your own bases. You make sure that you're, you you become more likely to get the title worthy teams in the discussion. So there is that, but beyond that, I, I, um, it's very clear that the, 
committee, I don't know how the best way to phrase it, but they have a strength of schedule problem in that they just don't, well, you ain't played nobody. So I can't take you seriously because you ain't played nobody. I'm sorry. I wish I could take you seriously. You're really fun to watch. I really appreciate you, but you ain't played nobody. Um, and that's the end of the discussion with Cincinnati and UCF and any other unbeaten team that isn't in a P5. And that's, I mean, it's a shame. This is the only stupid sport that has half of its membership on, like ineligible for the title in a given year because of that. But I, I mean, I, I, I got lucky. So in 2019, my first fall, with ESPN, I got to take part in that um, the the mock selection thing down in in Grapevine, Texas, down in the in the uh, not Opryland, but um, the Gaylord, just yeah. The, yeah, the Gaylord down there in Dallas. Yeah, and, beautiful um, hotel conference room. Oh sure. yeah, I mean, you think you're in you think you're in Nashville uh, when you're walking through the the middle section of that hotel, but um, so. You know, I, so you get to sit at the computers, you, you're a committee member, you sit at the computer, you see what they do, um, you see what the, the tools they have to work with. And, they, and they're, you know, it's a lot of information. Like you can compare how team A did against team B, who has the better rushing yards per game and this and that and, and all that. And it's, it's good, but they go out of their way to like, they proudly declare that they don't use advanced stats. They don't use any sort of. I mean, never mind SP plus, but any any sort of rating that uh, adjusts for opponent in any substantive way. And so all you're left with is Cincinnati looks really good on all these stats, but I mean, they haven't played anybody good. So how can we tell what after they proudly got rid of the ways they could tell? So that's that's the biggest issue. I mean, we have ways to do it. I, I'm not even talking about my own stuff. We we have ways to adjust for opponent and figure out how good team A is compared to team B in a predictive way, in a, in a substantive way. And then we just don't do it because. Yeah. Because, because, you know, and um, you know, that's, you know, it's just a missed opportunity. And, and it's one of those things too, where, you know, you, you look around that committee room, you know, bunch of guys who have won lots of football games as head coaches who have made lots of great hires as athletic directors, like, you know, big names in the sport, uh, typically who have played great football 30 years ago or whatever, like, but none of them has the background to like, to, to be able to substantively say, yeah, I do think Cincinnati's better than Notre Dame or Cincinnati's more deserving than Notre Dame of a playoff spot because this, 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 because there's just no way if you remove any sort of strength, the schedule adjustments. I feel like at this point, you know, just like, you know, I think people from our corner of the college football internet have said, like, we should take the total yardage stat and mostly throw it in the dumpster because it doesn't tell us anything. I think we need to collectively put strength of schedule uh, in, in, in a similar conversation, especially as it's, I think it's, it's commonly bandied about on Twitter because absent of any other context, it really doesn't tell us a whole lot. And that right. term can mean a bunch of different things. And then, yeah. And what you and I have seen with, with the committee is that it's uh, uh, it throws out a bunch of other particularly useful data. Yeah, um, there's no question. Yeah. I mean, BYU was a great example of that this year. Everybody, yeah. you know, they got punished for their schedule. Like they openly, like, we can't take this team seriously. They haven't played anybody like their entire schedule disintegrated a month before the season started. And, and that, that right there eliminated them. If they had their old schedule and they really put, they played like a top 10 team, the way they had uh, against the, their new schedule, if they had like whoever it was Arizona, whatever other PAC 12 teams were on there, they would have Utah, probably, Stanford. 
Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, they, if they were unbeaten in those first playoff rankings, like they wouldn't have been top four by any means, but they would have been the exact same team and they would have been at least top eight. <laughs> they would have been 12th or wherever they started. Um, and, you know, there's just, there are ways around that. We can tell every single game gives us information with like, even if you're only playing, North Alabama is about a bad example. Houston, even if you're only playing Houston, other teams have played Houston. We we can tell how, like we can learn a lot about your team by comparing your performance against Houston against everybody else's. Like that's still a thing. And yeah, um, we you know when you dismiss teams because of schedule, that basically means you're judging teams based on like two games a year. Even Alabama is only is going to only be judged by three, four, five games a year. If you basically say, well, that team stunk, therefore we don't need to pay any attention to this game. And like, that's just, we already have a, we already have a massive sample size issue in this sport and boiling things down to just the two or three really good teams you played, whether you've played anybody is, is, I mean, it's, it, it hurts the cause, I think. Yeah. We, the, the, there's the, the common talking point about how the current system is perfect because every single game matters. is pretty clearly baloney. Um, even in this very specific context where you're only really basically evaluating four or five data points. Yeah. Um, I, I suspect you and I and Brian could probably go another hour <laughs> on, <laughs> on, 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 on how much this, this particular system d- doesn't really make sense intuitively or analytically or anything, but um Bill, I I I, th- I think this has been really helpful. I, I appreciate it, did, Brian. Did you have anything else that you wanted well, to add? No, real quick? I, I just understand that as much as you hate the committee, you also hate the troops, Bill, and and that's been a constant refrain on the internet. And so I'm just wondering if if you want to come on that, here that and, and and clarify why you hate the troops. Habitual troop hater, Bill yeah. Connolly. You you would think that uh, SP Plus would love Army for how much they try fourth downs, but um, for whatever reason. I do wonder, like of all the the times that people have noticed SP plus through the years, um, I've got my loyalists or whatever, but I mean, just generally when, when it, when it perks up in people's minds that they have, they've heard of it because of this or that, I do wonder how much of it is people have heard of it because like it hated army two years ago <laughs> um, or three or whenever that was like, that's, that seemed to, to resonate with certain uh, army loving members of the media uh, Listen, if, in, if you in, have critiques about, about about Bill's system, you can send them to John Feinstein at jfeinsteinbooks at twitter.com. There you go. I, you said it. I didn't. I got you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> um, Bill, this, this, this has been a pleasure. Um, where can good people on the Internet continue to find your work? Well, the Twitter account at ESPN underscore Bill C is probably the best. You, I do. Um, I, like, I mean, everything goes through there, basically. So, you know, I, I've, I share a link every now and then with all the stuff I've read at ESPN and whatnot as well. So, yeah, just go there and 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 we'll figure it out from there. <laughs> he's, he's, he, Bill, Bill works for a company that I think you've heard of. He's on your TV sometimes. He's on your computer sometimes. Sometimes he's, he's in your ears. Follow him on Twitter and, uh, and, and, and find yourself to be a little bit more educated. Bill, it's, it's good to hear from you again, my friend. Thanks for your time. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll do it again later, uh, sometime later this season. Take care. All right. Thanks, man. Folks, this podcast is a product of the Extra Points newsletter.
So if you if you enjoyed this conversation, if you enjoy digging into the nuts and bolts of what makes college football and all of college athletics work, you're going to love that newsletter. Extra Points publishes four days a week. It digs into everything from name, image, and likeness to higher education policy to finance to how college athletic works everywhere from the FBS to the NAIA to even this week, we talked to some folks who are playing college football in Great Britain. If you want to understand all of that, stick around extra points. Um, and if you aren't already a paid subscriber, which gives you access to all four of those newsletters and access to our Discord chat room, now's a great time to do it. Go to www.extrapointsmb.com slash go for two. That's G-O-F-O-R, the number two. That gets you 20% off of paid subscriptions. You can save yourself a little bit of money and get access to all of that newsletter content. That's www.extrapointsmb.com slash go for two. I also wanted to let you know that if you are interested in potentially sponsoring one of the Extra Points newsletters or one of these podcasts, drop us a line at sales at extrapointsmb.com. This is an audience uh, that reaches um, thousands of engaged, educated, affluent college football fans and insiders. Um, we'd love to talk to you. Shoot me, drop us a line at sales at extrapointsmb.com. Brian, I, I, I love talking to Bill. Bill is one of my, uh, I think, biggest influences when I got into sports writing. I was lucky to call him a colleague for several years. Uh, he thinks about this sport and thinks about what we see on the field just, I think, in a really different way from a lot of other people, and, and that's refreshing. Absolutely. I mean, somebody that not only understands kind of that bigger picture, but can tell you why, which I, I think is is the biggest thing in this sport, is sometimes you you see a result, and, and you just kind of want to understand it deeper, and Bill is one of the best at that, and and also looking ahead. Um, you know, obviously, the, the S and, I, I want to say SNP plus, but it's SP plus, and, and that ampersign always gets us, but uh, yeah. it just, it's just fantastic at kind of looking at not only what, what's coming back with some of the returning production stuff that he does, but uh, all, all throughout the season, uh, he, he's great at not only showing us the numbers, but also understanding and, and helping us understand what they mean. And, and translating them, right? Like that's a pretty yeah. good uh, business right there is to translate what you see on an Excel spreadsheet into actual words, right? I, I, I used to joke about this before, but even if you write about college football for a living nationally, there's so many teams and you you didn't you probably didn't watch nine weeks of um, you know Louisiana Lafayette football. Um, you probably didn't watch every single thing that Oregon State did. And there was this kind of this running joke that everybody in the national media would would kind of crib off Bill's notes because I, for my money he does the best preview uh, and best offseason college football content to understand what's going on there. And that, to me, like that's worth paying ESPN Plus for to get access to all of that because nobody charts every single little thing. Like Bill does, yeah, it, it's incredible the the amount of depth that uh, he, he goes into, and you know, I think it was interesting coming out of that conversation to see kind of where he kind of sees things going forward from this because I, I think we're almost in a, in a revolution, not only in terms of the the numbers, but I think just the fan awareness of some of those numbers. I mean, uh, you know, you look at at just not even college football, but other sports. You know, I, I think there's a betting aspect to them as well, but I think for the regular everyday fan, I, I think they're starting to understand what some of these advanced statistics are starting to to mean and how they translate on the field. And uh, that's why, you know, guys like Bill are, are such a resource in, in this sport. Yeah, it, it really will be interesting to see how 
or I guess how predictive a lot of these stats are going to be for next season. One of the many reasons that I, I think struggled to really get engaged with the last football season and, and candidly kind of part of this basketball season too, was it felt like there were so many, um, variables from COVID coming in to make it hard, harder for me to, to kind of contextualize what I was actually watching on the field. Like, yes, Alabama and Ohio State and Clemson were very good. We saw that on TV. But when a quarter of a roster was going to be gone week to week, when it was pretty obvious we weren't seeing everyone's best effort uh, possible every week, to me, it almost made it, it almost seemed like what I'm watching isn't even really real. And how you're going to be able to tease predictive information out of what I think seems to be a pretty incomplete data set. Is, is going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting for gamblers. It's going to be interesting for media members uh, and fans. The idea here of, hey, you know, watch Northwestern, watch BYU as teams that could potentially take a, a, a backslide, watch some of these mid-tier Pac-12 teams, watch Miami. Um, they're going to be good case studies, uh, good, good, good test cases. Another reason to be engaged, I think, for this coming season. Yeah, I mean, just like 2020 was, you know, a, a case study for a lot of you know, other sports, you know, look at environmentalists and, and how they've been able to study, you know, what happens when a lot of people are just not on the roads and, and what kind of effects that has. We almost can have that with the college football season that we just saw. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about home field advantage and what that did or did not mean. Uh, I, I think you can kind of see those trailing off effects as well. I mean, uh, we, we were talking about the super seniors. Look, listen, everybody's getting a free year. So those roster repercussions are going to have, uh, you know, issues far down the road beyond 2021. So it, it's going to be fascinating to kind of track and see how the sport adjust and and really what schools are doing to kind of uh, see those numbers and, and adjust to them as well. Yeah, there's um, there's more than one way to build a winning football program and win games. There's some, there's really only one way to win a national championship. There's a lot of different ways to win eight and nine games, and we, we're going to be able to see this year a bunch of different schools take some pretty different paths to potentially get to that way. Um, Brian, I think you and I have a lot of stuff that we can continue to talk about and continue to write over the next coming weeks. We'll, well, I'm sure we'll dig into more of these over on, on this year' podcast. Where can folks find you? Well, as always, uh, on, on Twitter, Brian D. Fisher, B-R-Y-A-N-D-F-I-S-C-H-E-R. Very important to get that spelling right, but that's where you can find all that uh, all the stuff, uh, whether it's on Athlon Sports or elsewhere. Uh, it all ends up going through there, and that's that's the best place to find me. You You can find me. At Matt S, uh, not Matt SBN. I don't work at Expedition anymore. And I was thinking of Bill and, and immediately going back to the old times. No, I'm at Matt Brown EP. That EP stands for Extra Points, which is the newsletter, which you can find at www.extrapointsmb.com. Um, you can find this podcast anywhere you can download podcasts. And I would, I would entreat all of you, I would ask all of you to please continue. Share the podcast with your friends if you like it, leave a review. Leave a five-star rating or a four-star if you just thought this was a B-plus effort. That's fine, too. If you thought it was a one-star rating, kindly keep that negative opinion to yourself because that sucks and it makes my job a little bit harder. Um, you can send me an email if you'd like to complain, and, and I, will, I will happily write back to you instead. Um, but the more that people share this if they like it, the, uh, the bigger of an audience we can reach, the more attractive that is to sponsors, the more it helps our work on our various platforms. Uh, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, in the meantime, that's Brian. I'm Matt. Thanks for listening, everybody. Catch up with you next week.